The following Marx Daily Apple articles were written by Marxism and are narrated by Brock Armstrong. Welcome to Marx Daily Apple Best of 2014, Volume 4, Primal Criticism Rebutted, featuring Why Does the Paleo Diet Continue to Receive Low Points from Established Authorities? We Don't Know What Constitutes a True Paleo Diet, and One True Paleo Diet Doesn't Exist, But So What? Why does the paleo diet continue to receive low points from established authorities? You may have heard the big news. The paleo diet ranked dead last in the U.S. News and World Report diet rankings. When my inbox floods with links to the latest paleo bashing in the media, I don't even get surprised or annoyed anymore. It amuses me. The one downside of this stuff is that work grinds to a halt for a few hours because a popular pastime around the primal headquarters, whenever one of these reports comes out, is to see who can pick the ripest, most ridiculous misconceptions or blatant falsehoods. The big upside is even more publicity, more notoriety, and more laughter. And laughter is always a good thing. Initially, you may weep at the ignorance on display, That's how I was when I first started out, along with a bit of teeth gnashing, but it gives way to deep belly laughter that resonates through every bone in your body and plucks the ligaments holding them together to create a sweet, sonorous melody, filling the room and reaching to the skies above. At least it did for me. So, let's laugh together. I'll draw on three of the best statements and quotes we've been passing around and provide a bit of translation and or commentary. As a bonus, you get to use these quick replies whenever somebody smugly thrusts the U.S. News diet rankings in your face. 1. Does it have cardiovascular benefits? While some studies have linked paleo diets with reducing blood pressure, bad LDL cholesterol and triglycerides, a fatty substance that can raise heart disease risk, they have been few, small, and short. And all that fat would worry most experts. Translation. Although actual studies on paleo diet in live human subjects result in improved risk factors for heart disease, including lower blood pressure, LDL cholesterol, and triglycerides, all that fat worries our expert panel. And we've got a hunch that those results are invalid and do not reflect reality. Because reasons. Just trust us. Hey, who's up for a slim fast shake whose third ingredient is heart healthy sugar? In reality. They say it right there, don't they? And somehow choose to ignore it. And some studies haven't just linked paleo diets to lower blood pressure, LDL cholesterol, and triglycerides. Randomized control trials have legitimately shown that paleo diets can directly cause the improvements in traditional cardiovascular disease markers. You can argue that they were too small to draw overreaching conclusions about the population at large, and that would be fair, absolutely, but the studies show causation, not just association. 2. Will you lose weight? No way to tell. Translation? There's absolutely no way to tell if you'll lose weight on this diet. None. 
We've racked our considerable brains, combed through the scientific literature, and consulted with several dozen different experts on human metabolism and nutrition. We are all absolutely stumped. There is literally nothing present in the extent body of human knowledge that would indicate the paleo diet can help you lose weight. The likely, if unfortunate, answer is that we will never, absent divine intervention, truly know if this diet can work for weight loss. We strongly suggest that you abandon your futile pursuit of weight loss on the paleo diet and turn to one of the weight loss diets with extensive support in scientific literature, like the cookie diet. Oh, and if you think trying it out yourself can help you learn whether or not you'll lose weight on paleo, think again. Your inherent bias towards wanting to lose weight on the paleo diet may induce hallucinatory delusions whenever you step on a scale to track your progress. Your weight will only appear to be lowering, and you've always worn that same size pant. What? You had to buy a new belt because the old one wouldn't fit? How do you know you didn't just imagine buying a new belt? Ever think of that? Exactly. Don't be fooled by the placebo effect, people. In reality, randomized control trials of the paleo diet have shown it works for weight loss, and when compared to the Mediterranean diet, the paleo diet has been shown to be more satiating per calorie. More recently, the same thing happened when they compared a paleo diet to a standard diabetes diet in type 2 diabetics. Being able to eat fewer calories, spontaneously, without getting any hungrier, is pretty much the defining characteristic of a successful weight loss diet. Paleo is also pretty good at helping you lose fat where it matters most. A recent study showed that postmenopausal women eating paleo lost liver and waist fat, improving their waist-to-hip ratio and lowering their ApoB, a good approximation for LDL particle number, among other improvements. Even if those studies didn't exist, you always have the ability to determine if a diet works by trying it out yourself. 3. Are there health risks? Possibly. By shunning dairy and grains, you're at risk of missing out on a lot of nutrients. Also, if you're not careful about making lean meat choices, you'll quickly ratchet up your risk of heart problems. Translation by embracing eggs, beef, wild salmon, chicken, lamb, pork, kale, chard, romaine lettuce, spinach, blackberries, blueberries, raspberries, apples, broccoli, sweet potatoes, beets, carrots, oranges, sardines, organ meat, shellfish, fennel, onions, garlic, asparagus, seaweed, butternut squash, yellow squash, zucchini, tomatoes, strawberries, cantaloupe, almonds, macadamia nuts, sunflower seeds, pumpkin seeds, pecans, walnuts, and tuna, you're at risk of missing out on a lot of nutrients. All those foods might taste nice and look pretty on a plate, but they are incredibly nutrient-sparse. You won't just increase your risk of heart disease, you will quickly ratchet up your risk. Let's take this apart, because it's a sneaky choice of words. To ratchet is to cause something to rise or fall as a step in what is perceived to be an irreversible progress. So, not only are you increasing your risk of heart disease, you are setting out on an irreversible path towards heart problems. Each bite of 85 by 15 ground beef you take, each morsel of lamb chop you swallow, each time you fail to make a lean meat choice, these are death contracts upon which you can never renege. In reality, I actually won't quibble on the notion of dairy being a good, dependable source of nutrients like calcium, potassium, protein, and healthy fats. 
It is, which is why I support the consumption of dairy, as long as you're not intolerant of any of its components and suffer no ill symptoms. That said, you don't need to eat dairy to get calcium, potassium, protein, or fat. Besides, I highly doubt US News and World Reports count dairy fat as one of the benefits. In fact, leafy greens like kale, collards, mustard greens, and spinach, and other vegetables like bok choy are excellent sources of calcium. Edible bony fish like canned sardines are also great paleo sources of calcium, while protein and potassium are easy to come by on paleo. In fact, the US News and World Rankings Committee admitted that paleo provided nearly 10 grams of potassium, or double the recommended amount. As for general nutrient density, basic paleo meats, or more commonly, exceeds the USDA recommendations for most nutrients. Meat, whether lean or fatty, has never been consistently linked to heart disease. The most recent epidemiology actually vindicates fresh red meat, while condemning only processed meats like hot dogs and bologna. And even those associations are likely confounded by variables like the healthy user bias. I was disappointed to see that they'd removed the reader response section, where readers could vote on whether a particular diet had worked for them or not. In 2011, when Paleo was similarly trashed by US News and World Report, the reader response overwhelmingly indicated that the diet worked for people who were possibly experiencing a collective hallucination. This directly contradicts the opinion of the experts that Paleo is just too hard to follow, even if it were effective. Same goes for the way Paleo diet is trending on Google. As Rob Wolf illustrates in a recent rebuttal to the diet rankings, if paleo was too hard, we wouldn't see the consistent upward trend of Google searches. We'd see a big drop-off in interest, and we just aren't seeing that. Anyway, those are my thoughts. What about you? How many relatives and friends have you heard from regarding this? Does it change your mind at all? Hey, Primal listeners, here's a quick health tip for you. Most Primal paleo-oriented health professionals agree that supplementing with pharmaceutical-grade fish oil is an easy way to help you achieve peak health. Omega-3s support a healthy immune system, pain-free flexible joints, brain and nerve health, and serve as nature's anti-inflammatory fats that can help keep chronic inflammation in check. Primal Nutrition's Vital Omegas are the highest quality source of the essential fatty acids DHA and EPA. Concentrated and refined to the highest levels of purity and packaged in easy-to-swallow capsules. Order three bottles and get one free at PrimalBlueprint.com. We don't know what constitutes a true paleo diet. Critics often lambaste the Primal Blueprint and other ancestral and paleo ways of eating for what they see as fatal flaws. First, that we don't know what our ancestors were truly eating. Second, that there wasn't just one paleo diet. Third, that even if we could know exactly what our ancestors were eating, it doesn't mean those foods were the ideal foods. They were trying to eat whatever was available, not whatever was most nutritious and synergistic with their genome. Before I address these, I want to make an important point. The anthropological record provides a framework for further examination of nutritional science. It does not prescribe a diet. It gives us somewhere to start, so we're not flailing blind men dropped off in the middle of a strange city. That is why we're interested in what early humans ate, and didn't eat. It may surprise you to know that I think the first assertion is absolutely right. We don't know what exactly our ancestors were eating. 
There are no Pleistocene food journal entries scrawled on the cave wall someplace, and many of the primary sources we can access, phytoliths, which indicate the presence of vegetable material, and stable carbon and nitrogen isotopes, which indicate the sources of dietary protein, require analysis and interpretation, thus becoming secondary sources. If you thought food frequency questionnaires were unreliable, try figuring out if phytoliths found in Neanderthal dentition originated from the direct consumption of plants or the consumption of fermenting plant inside a recently hunted animal's stomach, or whether the isotope analysis of African hominins from a few million years ago indicates diets high in grass seeds or diets high in grass seed-eating herbivores. However, we absolutely do know what early humans did not eat. Industrial seed oils high enough in linoleic acid to crowd omega-3 out of their tissues. A diet where refined sugar made up 17 or 15% of their total caloric intake. We know these things because these foods either didn't exist until the late 1880s, seed oils like corn, or only graduated from expensive luxury item to widely used staple food in the 1700s, like white sugar. As to the second claim, of course, there is no one true ancestral diet with a strict, curated, specific list of dietary do's and don'ts. Humans have managed to populate every barely hospitable nook and cranny of this planet. If living things grow, slither, crawl, flap, swim, or otherwise reside there, we will set up shop in order to eat them. However, patterns do emerge. First, there's the aforementioned total absences, seed oils, sugar, plus a dearth of cultivated grains. Wild versions of grains existed. After all, the first agriculturists needed something to domesticate, but there's little evidence to suggest they were major parts of most early human diets. Second, there's animal consumption. We just love eating sentient mobile organisms. There's never been a traditionally vegetarian culture, and every hunter-gatherer population ever studied consumes animals. Third, there's plant consumption. Plants are trickier than animals because they keep fighting back after you've killed and sometimes cooked them. There are other patterns which I'll discuss in future posts. The third charge is a common one, and it takes many forms. The one I get a lot is that early humans were disparate scavengers, just barely skating by and eking out a diet of diseased rodents, chitinous bugs, tree bark, and lichen. Since he didn't know any better and was just eating what he could without regard for nutrients, what early humans ate shouldn't inform our dietary choices. Well, it's a specious argument. Whether our ancestors were dumb brutes stumbling through life without ever considering what they ate, they weren't, or unaccredited ethnobotanists with intricate knowledge of medicinal, toxic, and nutritious plants and animals, they probably were, doesn't matter in the slightest. Let's say that natural selection adapts an organism to a given environment by selecting for an advantageous trait. What if the environment shifts, as they do, and the trait that the original environment selected no longer works the same way? This is an evolutionary mismatch. It can happen with any environmental shift, like a change in diet. Mismatches between an organism and its environment are core concepts in evolutionary biology. 
They aren't controversial. In fact, evolution requires evolutionary mismatch because mismatches represent selective pressures on an organism that lead to adaptations, which of course lead to more mismatches and so on. It's easy to see how diet fits in. If environment shapes an organism's evolution via natural selection and evolutionary mismatch, and diet represents an aspect of the environment, then diet, in addition to many other environmental factors, must affect how an organism develops. I don't see how you can argue against that. You can argue that this specific food was or wasn't part of an ancestral dietary environment, or that Grok had no idea what he was doing, but you can't argue against the relevance of an ancestral dietary environment. There were no ideal foods? Okay. That's not the point. I'm just establishing that there were simply dietary patterns that shaped the metabolisms, nutritional requirements, endocrine systems, and brains of the walking, talking, loving, pondering collectives of cells and microbes we call ourselves. I don't know about you, but it seems like examining these dietary patterns might offer helpful clues to modern humans currently embroiled in a classic case of evolutionary mismatch. Mismatches are very interesting when you are a detached academic observing the trajectory of another species, but, on the ground level, to the organisms experiencing it, mismatches lead to disease, pain, and suffering. They're awful. Luckily, there's evidence that dietary changes are relevant. When zookeepers noticed that gorillas were getting diabetes and heart disease on scientifically formulated gorilla chow, they said, Hey, let's try providing a diet approximating the one these great apes might eat in the wild. I'm thinking leafy greens, alfalfa, green beans, and tree branches? The gorillas thrived. So did the grizzlies and the elephants, when placed on diets that approximate, rather than replicate, their wild diets. Are we so different? In future posts, I'll explore some of the evidence for what we do know about our ancestors' diets. For now, let's agree that whatever early humans did or didn't eat is important to consider, eh? Many health experts believe that gut bacteria represents the next breakthrough in optimizing health and immune function. When you nourish healthy intestinal flora with primal eating habits and the high-potency probiotics in primal flora, you protect yourself from the everyday illnesses and compromised digestion that are common in stressful modern life. The unique strains of probiotics in primal flora help you improve digestion and regularity, bolster function and can even assist you with weight loss by optimizing fat metabolism. One daily capsule is all it takes to ensure your body is thriving with billions of healthy gut bacteria so that you can enjoy optimal health 24-7. Order Primal Flora today at PrimalBlueprint.com to take advantage of our risk-free trial. One true paleo diet doesn't exist, but so what? As a rule, people tend to eat whatever food they can physically access. Transcontinental shipping now allows us to access all sorts of foods. We can eat durian in California, jasmine rice in Alaska, spam in Hawaii, and Russian caviar in Cape Town. But for most of prehistory, humans ate only locally available foods. So it's no surprise to hear that hunter-gatherers, past and present, ate and eat wildly varied diets depending on their environment. The East African Hadza diet is different from the Arctic Inuit diet, is different from the Paraguayan Aceh diet. This is usually highlighted by critics as a counterpoint to the tenets of ancestral health. 
Because apparently, we're all convinced that a single rigid dietary prescription is the one true diet. That's silly, of course. Today, I'm going to explore the hunter-gatherer diets about which we do have data, including environment, available and utilized plant and animal species, amount of food derived from the various categories, meat, fish, plants, seeds, tubers, etc., and macronutrient ratios whenever possible. Let's see what we can glean from this data. Are there commonalities, common differences? What trends do we observe? I've excluded pastoralists like the Maasai, agrarians like the Kitavans, and any other groups eating otherwise traditional diets that are not strictly hunter-gatherers. Those are certainly healthy groups, and we can learn a lot from their diets, but they aren't hunter-gatherers. Due to the nature of the subject, much of the data is incomplete. Much is qualitative rather than quantitative. But I'll provide hard numbers whenever possible. I'll speak in both generalities and specifics whenever possible, as I try to give an overarching impression of what actual hunter-gatherers were and are eating. Here we. Environment. The neotropical savannas of western Venezuela and eastern Colombia, which are characterized by extreme seasonal shifts that rendered the area unsuitable for most agriculture, before industrial agriculture reared its head. During the rainy season, it floods up to a meter high, turning the plains into a kind of wetland. The result is a diverse ecosystem rich in edible wildlife, including water birds, capybara, massive delicious rodents that I swore as a kid would make a perfect pet, deer, armadillo, caiman, and turtles. What they ate. The Hiwi depended primarily on hunted game, fish, and gathered roots. Deer, capybara, armadillo, anteater, peccary, various fish, lizards, and turtles were the main sources of game meat. Some honey was eaten, while fruit played a minor role. Numbers. 75% of their intake came from animals and 25% from plants. Ache. Environment. The tropical forests of eastern Paraguay. What they ate... The Aceh relied primarily on hunted game, honey, palm starch, and insect larvae. Numbers. Game meat accounted for 78% of their traditional diet, honey, 8%, and palm starch, insects, palm hearts, and fruit, the remaining 14%. The species which comprised 90% of their hunted food were armadillo, capuchin monkey, peccary, paca, coti, and deer. Samai. Environment. The Samai's ancestral lands were called the Sapmi, covering northern Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia's Kola Peninsula. They were both subarctic and arctic with treeless tundra and coniferous forests alike. By the 17th century, they'd taken up reindeer herding to keep up with the Scandinavian government's demands for pelts, but prior to that, they were exclusively hunter-gatherers. What they ate. The Samai were primarily hunters and fishers, with some plant utilization. Animals included reindeer, the most important one, moose, bear, seals, walrus, salmon, and rabbits. Plants included all manner of berry, blueberry, cloudberry, lingonberry, buckthorn. Numbers? None available. Inuit. Environment the Arctic, including Greenland, Alaska, and Canada. 
their lands were very inhospitable to most forms of agriculture and populated by large fatty mammals, both marine and terrestrial. What they ate, seals, walrus, caribou, fish, shellfish, and other marine fare made up the animal food. Plant foods included seaweed, berries, roots, and partially digested plant matter, lichens, assorted grass, found in hunted caribou's stomachs. Numbers. By most accounts, animals, both marine and land, accounted for 96% or more of their food, with plants bringing up the rear. Kong. Environment. Kalahari Desert of Botswana, Namibia, and Angola. A semi-desert with plentiful grazing after rains. Being just semi-arid, it supports more plants and wildlife than a true desert like the Sahara. What they ate. Animal foods included antelope, giraffe, rabbit, and guinea fowl. Plant foods included mongongo nuts, baobab pods, berries, citron melons, a wild melon similar to the watermelon but far less sweet and more fibrous, wild mangoes, various roots and tubers, bitter melon, a plant with anti-diabetic properties. Numbers. By weight not calories necessarily, 31% animals, 28% mongongo nuts, 41% other plants. Hadza. Environment. North-central Tanzania, in a section of the very same rift valley that hosted the earliest modern humans. What they ate. According to an anthropologist who lived with them, a wide variety of birds and mammals and a variety of berries plus tubers, honey, and baobab. The tubers are so high in fiber that they're nothing like the food we eat, even the food highest in fiber. The meat is lean by our standards, and the Hadza extract every last available bit from the animals. Numbers. 48% animal food, 52% plant food. Anbara. Environment. Tropical Arnhem Land in Northern Australia. On the coast. What they ate. Primarily shellfish and other marine animals, with some birds and lizards. Roots, fruits, and seeds, with some honey on the side. Numbers. 75% animal food, mostly shellfish and fish, and 25% plant food. Ongi. Environment. Located south of India, the Adaman Islands hosted and continue to host some of the most isolated, untouched populations of hunter-gatherers in the world. Even today, the Sentinelesi, one of the tribes, remain essentially disconnected from the rest of the world. All attempts to make contact have ended in bloodshed, or nearly so. The best records exist for one tribe in particular, the Ongi. What they ate. Wild boar, dugongs, relatives of the manatee, a massive marine animal with hundreds of pounds of mostly saturated and monounsaturated body fat. Turtles, fish, crabs, tubers, fruit, and honey. Numbers? 79% animal food, 21% plant food. Those are just the groups whose diets have been quantitatively studied. There are also hundreds of qualitative, more anecdotal reports from ethnographers who studied other hunter-gatherer groups, dietary habits without measuring energy in micronutrients, and the general impression is more consistent with the more detailed. 
a preference for animal foods, with the majority of groups getting more than 50% of calories from animals, fish, insects, and eggs. What do you notice? Any trends? Reliance on hunted animal foods is consistent and universal, regardless of climate. As Cordain notes, hunted terrestrial animal foods, big game, small game, medium game birds, any land animal, is a consistent feature of hunter-gatherer subsistence. The closer you are to the equator, the more plant food you see utilized. The further you get from the equator, the less plant food and the more seafood you see. But, regardless of latitude, between 25 and 36% of hunter-gatherer subsistence comes from hunted animal food. That appears to be the baseline, with the remainder coming from plants, if closer to the equator, or marine animals, if farther from the equator. Plant food utilization is universal, but dependent on climate. While even the Arctic groups consumed plant foods, plant availability, and thus consumption, skyrocketed the closer a group lived to the equator. No vegetarians. And certainly no vegans. Vegetarianism is a luxury of industrialization. Except for honey, animals are the most energy-dense foods available, and often nutrient-dense as well. Plants alone simply didn't cut it. And that was the reality for several million years of hominid evolution. Hunter-gatherer groups helped confirm our collective omnivory. And there were certainly no vegans. Does this mean vegetarianism and veganism are unhealthy? No, that can't be proven with historical records. It does probably suggest that vegetarianism and veganism are less than optimal. No refined vegetable fats. The Kung's high consumption of nutrient-dense mongongo nuts, rich in linoleic acid, doesn't resemble the Arizonians' consumption of french fries cooked in soybean oil rich in linoleic acid. Mongongo nuts are loaded with magnesium, vitamin E to protect the linoleic acid from oxidation, calcium, protein, copper, and even zinc. Soybean oil is just refined fat without nutrients. No offense, Arizona. I just picked a random state's name out of the hat. No refined sugar. Honey is not a refined sweetener. It's a dense source of sugar, yes, but honey contains phytochemicals and prebiotics that alter the metabolic ramifications of consuming it. Same goes for fruit, which also comes with fiber. And truly wild honey, the kind hunter-gatherers utilized, is unfiltered. It's full of larvae, pollen, wings, stingers, severed bee legs, unlucky drones, and other nutritious bits that distinguish it from most store-bought honey, let alone white sugar. The Aceh's 8% honey and larvae diet doesn't resemble a two-coke-a-day habit by any stretch of the imagination. No refined grains. This is an obvious one. Grains are rarely, if ever, mentioned in the literature. Lots of whole animals. Lean muscle meat isn't the only thing they eat off the game they kill. Insects. Many anthropologists gloss over the importance of insect consumption among modern hunter-gatherers, and some of the dietary ratios ignore their contribution entirely. But hunter-gatherer groups definitely consumed bugs. So, are hunter-gatherer diets so different from each other as to be useless for us, as critics claim? 
is, say, a Kong diet closer to a standard American diet than it is to other traditional hunter-gatherer diets just because the macronutrient ratios are somewhat similar and both have a lot of linoleic acid is Hazda ate different from Inuit, therefore eat grains. A valid criticism of primal eating? No. The trends are obvious, and while they indicate a relatively broad range of potential macronutrient ratios, they support and inform, without proving the validity of, the central themes and strategies of a primal blueprint way of eating. What do you say, folks? Does the fact that different hunter-gatherer groups ate or eat different foods imply that we should therefore stop eating the way that makes us feel, look, and perform better than we ever have? Thanks for listening, folks. And if you're enjoying these Mark's Daily Apple recordings, please go over to iTunes and leave us a ranking and perhaps a review. It helps spread the good word, and we'd really appreciate the help. Hey, Primal Podcast listeners, have you been wanting and waiting to take your health or your clients to peak levels? Then it's time to enroll in the Primal Blueprint Expert Certification. The Primal Blueprint Expert Certification is the very first and surely to be the preeminent ancestral health online certification program. From the comfort of your own home, you'll dive deeper into the Primal Blueprint philosophy with a comprehensive online course and examination process through 13 educational modules. from Primal Blueprint author Mark Sisson. Graduates are listed online in our certified expert directory to enhance their credibility in the evolutionary health world. Register for the certification program today at primalblueprint.com and gain immediate access to the course materials and educational library.